The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Our first guest up today, Congressman Russell Fry, represents South Carolina's 7th District. Uh, prior to uh, going to the U.S. Congress, he represented the State House in South Carolina's General Assembly for seven years, served as Chief Majority Whip. Uh, and Chuck, we always love Congress members and senators who have served in their local State House or local government because you just get a perspective that Washington does not offer. So we're very excited to talk with him. He is a fighter for lower taxes, less government, pro-Second Amendment legislation, and pro-life legislation. Chuck, if you're pro-life today, you've got to be fighting this fentanyl epidemic, this crisis that is tearing the country apart. 100%. Congressman, you have introduced a bipartisan bill called the Fentanyl Crisis Research and Evaluation Act. To learn more about how the fentanyl crisis is impact, impacting America, in um, South Carolina in 2021, you had 1,494 deaths due to fentanyl. I mean, that's we can multiply that by 10, 20 because of the family members it affects, right? Their loved ones, things of that nature. What do we need to do to turn the tide back against this fentanyl crisis? Oh, gosh, there's just a lot. And, and we quite honestly don't I don't even know that we have enough time in the segment, but we'll we'll try. The first thing I think is and, and the first thing is, is you've got to stop the flow. That's at the border. You've got to stop that. You've got to address that. But beyond that, what you have to realize is you need access to care. You need uh, the ability of, uh, of families to get the, the resources and the help they need. You need to strengthen law enforcement. And what frustrates me is this is the biggest one of the biggest health care problems that we have in this country but beyond that congress doesn't know a lot about the impact on the economy on the labor market on housing the 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 impact on the treasury i mean all these different things and the fact that we don't know those frustrates me i just got there i'm like wait a second y'all don't know these these data points that would help dictate good policy so you got to stop the flow, but beyond that, you need to give lanes for recovery so that people can get back on their feet uh, and get back to work, get back to being normal people. Um, and fentanyl just, I mean, we see it every day. 70% of the overdoses in this state are associated with fentanyl alone. Uh, and it's similar like that across the country. It's just sad to see. Well, what's so frustrating about this fentanyl crisis is, A, there is a role for government, closing the border, finding out what these data points are, you know, the things you're trying to investigate. Well, and pushing people into treatment. Pushing people into treatment. But there's what's also frustrating for me is just don't take drugs. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, I mean, it's that's what's hard about it, right? And so mm -hmm. there's, you know, the government has a role in this, and I don't want to pretend it does not. Law enforcement has a role in this. But there's also a lot of personal responsibility. And I think that's something the communities and churches. I mean, the old Nancy Reagan slogan, just say no, which was mocked. I, I don't know. Maybe we need a campaign like that again. Well, maybe. Look, and, and I do know that prevention, for every dollar that you invest in prevention, you save, I think, $4 in wow. health care costs and $7 in criminal justice costs. So the, the, the messaging, the PSAs that people put out there, that, that education component is just so big. And what's crazy, look, I'm 38 years old. And we all know people who partake in a little bit of marijuana or whatever. People just do that. And, and in some states it's allowed, some states it's not. But you know what's crazy? They live to tell the tale until recently. I mean, it's yes, laced in right. everything. And that's the, that's the crazy. People don't go out and seek, you know, let me get some fentanyl. Uh, it's usually added into other things. And you hear about West Point cadets. You hear about students. You hear about just really everybody uh, in all walks of life that, that have to deal with this. And they never live to tell the tale to get back on the recovery. So the prevention side, which you just talked about, that's critical to this. Well, and, and Congressman, this is Sam. One of the things that 
Uh, so I've worked a lot with the city of Phoenix, and one of the things that that we know uh, that I don't think the public is fully aware of yet is that Narcan loses effectiveness after a person has had to use it a couple of times. So the more the more someone has overdosed, and right now we're keeping a lot of these folks alive by having Narcan everywhere, but there are limitations on that, and that's going to result in a increased death toll over time. Right, right, and you know what's frustrating too. To that point, you know, we just did this pilot program in South Carolina that I think other places can do. But say you you say you overdose, you go to the hospital, you're recovered, you revive. Um, you come around again, and you know what? You have this moment of clarity at that point. A lot of people do, and they go, I need to get help. And so then they try to go get into a place to get help. And guess what? you got to wait two, three, four weeks to get into a place. Well, guess what? By that time, that addiction has already started to pull you back in, and you're back doing the same thing you are again. What we've done in South Carolina, at least here locally, is fast track those people. So when these things happen, but that's one of those barriers to access, but just when there's that clarity, because everyone hits that point. Um, when there's that clarity and you go, I need to get help, I need help. Uh, you got to wait around for four or five, six weeks. If you can even get in somewhere. You have um, to have help available of, right then and there. Right. You need it. And, and if you don't have that peer to peer help, if you don't have, you know, medication-assisted treatment or whatever whatever options are out there, if that's not available to you, you're doing the same thing again, and you might not get a second, third, fourth chance in the future. You might overdose and, and pass away, and that's what we're seeing right now. We're with Congressman Russell Fry. He represents South Carolina's 7th District. You can catch this interview this weekend in Florence, South Carolina, on AM 1400, and, of course, nationwide on other outlets. Congressman, have you talked to local law enforcement about this issue, and what are their, what's their feedback to you? Well, I have, and unfortunately, in, in your listening area in Florence, there's a sheriff whose daughter just recently passed away from a fentanyl overdose. Oh so, again, it affects everybody. Um, but they're seeing just the dramatic growth in it. Their, their officers are, you know, equipped with Narcan. They're seeing it, you know, they're seeing the, the growth of this drug in rural communities, in urban centers, really everywhere. And it's, and it's worse than it's ever been. Um, so, you know, they feel frustrated. South Carolina did fortunately pass a law last year. I had, when I was in the General Assembly, I was, I had brought it up. And, you know, some, sometimes these things take a couple of years to get done. But in this one, it just gives tools to law enforcement to be able to crack down on this, to be able to, you know, to unwind some of these uh, some of these drug rings that are that are around. And so, you know, that's a big component of this, too. But they're feeling it. They see it every day and they have to train their officers on how to deal with it because, you know, it's a dangerous substance that if it gets on your skin, one of their own might go down. Yeah, we've seen that across the country with police officers who have been overdosed from from very minor exposure to fentanyl uh, during their interactions with the public. So it's a huge issue. But, uh, Congressman, one of the things, and I know you've been a big fighter for a secure border, but it seems like this is not a problem we're going to be able to address unless we start getting control of the border. And the data that just come out uh, shows that not only are we not doing anything realistically to get control of the border, the problem is worse than it's ever been. Over 90,000 people uh, detained by Border Patrol uh, last month, uh, you know, beating a May 2019 record. And that's who they caught. Yeah, and that's who they caught. Right. Uh, the fentanyl right. dealers are not the ones. Those are the ones who are turning themselves over to Border right. Patrol to begin the asylum process. The people we're not catching are the fentanyl traffickers, the dealers, the cartel members. Right. How do we address this unless we start really securing our border? Well, you can't. And that's, that's been my message even, even before I got to Congress and just doing, you know, dealing with opioids in the state level. You cannot begin to address the issue until you st- shut off the, the hose, until you shut off the flow. Uh, and it doesn't mean you can't start, you know, start trying and keep trying. South Carolina is always going to do that. Local governments are always going to keep trying to address it. But they're not in the position that the federal government is to deal with the flow. And when you have, you know, the administration touts the record amount of fentanyl that they've seized, that's great. But there's so much more that's coming through the, the border. We know that. We know the precursors, the chemicals are coming from China. We know that they're being manufactured just south. We know that the cartels are shipping them up. 
And they're not dummies. They will flood an area with 100, 200 migrants, and then two miles up the road, they'll sneak a, you know, they'll sneak fentanyl across the border, or, you know, uh, human smuggling or human trafficking. They'll do that because all the resources are dealing with the 200 people that are just sitting there in this section of Yuma or wherever they might be. It's it's obscene. We're with Congressman Russell Fry. You can get him on Twitter at Russell Fry SC. Um, Congressman, you your your district was just hit by the hurricane. How how's everybody doing? How's everybody coping out there? I think okay. I mean, we were very fortunate. I mean, there was uh, some tornadic activity uh, up in the Cherry Grove section along the coast, and so you had some homes that were damaged. Uh, you have a road that that looks like it took some damage, but I would say overall. Uh, we were very fortunate. I think the storm, you know, you know there's never a, a great time for a storm to hit. But uh, when it's low tide and the storm arrives, you don't have the storm surge. Uh, this, it was moving very quickly, so it didn't stay here long. You know, it rained, you know, five and a half, six inches, which is a lot. Uh, but it was able, you know, we were able to largely absorb it. So I think overall we were very blessed uh, in in dealing with it. And so some some things to recover from, but not as bad as uh, Florida and not as bad as prior storms in our area. Congressman, we have just about two minutes before we go to break, and folks, we're going to be coming back with more from Congressman here in just a moment. But um, one of the things I kind of, Chuck and I have been kind of talking about these last couple of days watching this hurricane is that I think the almost every American citizen would, would give thanks to God that this did not end up being a worse situation than it was, that it, it was not the catastrophe that was predicted. But what is kind of disconcerting to me is that it seems like the corporate media, the left media, even some Democrat officials, there was almost a palpable sense of disappointment that these two hurricanes that we've just had, the one on the West Coast and this one, neither delivered the kind of catastrophe that that they almost seem to be hoping for. No, it's 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 wild. I mean, and they drive clicks and they spin up fear. Uh, We actually had some and I won't tell you who, but we had some. Uh, news interviews that were canceled, and and I just have to assume that it was it wasn't you know it wasn't chaotic enough for them. Um, but regardless, I think I think you're right, and and it's sad to see people get spun up. Uh, we've been dealing with storms since forever, and yes. you know in 1957 we had Hurricane Hazel that wreaked havoc way before my time. Uh, but you talk to people, it was a I think a Category four or five that hit this area directly. Uh, these storms are you know, they they are problematic, but what makes it worse is just the the doomsday scenarios from the media. People just need to be prepared. They need to listen to their, you know, their local uh, local officials and, and state officials on how to deal with this. But then that's where FEMA comes in on the back end is to help the recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Breaking Battleground is going to be back in just a moment with more from Congressman Russell Fry. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. We're going to be continuing on in just a moment with more from Congressman Russell Fry of South Carolina's 7th District. But first, folks, how's your portfolio doing? Been an up and down, another up and down week in the Biden stock market. What if you could earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return instead of taking all that risk? up to 10.25% fixed. It's a fantastic opportunity from our friends at YReFi. Check them out, investyrefi.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. All right, Congressman, uh, before we went to break, we, we were talking a little bit about uh, the issues with fentanyl, the border, and you mentioned that something I think a lot of people are becoming aware of is that the precursor chemicals for the fentanyl that we're seeing coming into the country, for the meth that is vastly more powerful than it was just a few years ago that is coming into this country, with the the Trank and other new designer drugs, 
the precursor chemicals are all coming to Mexico where they're turned into drugs. They're coming from China. What can we do to try to stop that pipeline? Well, I think I think you've got to have a realistic one. I think that there are, uh, and and we we saw this a little bit with with the Trump administration in the early stages. But you've got to stop that flow. You've got to be able to sanction those companies, stop the flow, take you know. And look, China needs to be a willing participant here too. And that's the frustration that I have right now is that you know there was a there was a an op-ed the other day talking about fentanyl. Uh, from a Biden administration official, but they never mentioned China. Well, they have a big role here. These chemicals are manufactured over there, and they're shipped across to the cartels who put it all together and make fentanyl. And so they've got to be a willing participant. But you've got to have an administration that actually wakes up and says, we know this is coming from our southern border. We know the chemicals are coming from China. And up to this point, they're not really talking about that. And I think that's the big that's the well, biggest frustration. Well, you're asking that. Joe Biden to wake up. There's no evidence that's no, possible. But, but look, if you're China <laughs> and you want to hurt your competitor, I won't say we're their enemy. Let's say we're their number one competitor. What do you do? You flood their country with mm-hmm. things that will cause devastation. Right, it's a, it's an unseen yeah. war that that fentanyl, meth, TikTok. Yeah, that's, it's not the same as firing a missile, but it has the same effect. All due respect. Well, and, and a lot of these companies too. I mean, they have multiple locations in different right. spots, right? I mean, they're just they're usually not just isolated in China. Um, you know, these are big companies, and so they need to have some skin in the game. You need to be able to you need to be able to leverage influence there, maybe even tariff or sanction them. But at the end of the day. The flow, you know, China has a spot there. And, and you know what? Maybe there's, there is a nefarious purpose behind this. Um, I believe you're probably right about that. Uh, but there are ways to address it. And if they won't, then we need to, there are other ways that we can force them to the table. And we need, to, we need to take a look at that. 300 Americans die every single day from this drug. I mean, it's just astronomical. And, uh, you know, we, we, we've used the term poisoning because that's really what it is. It's not an overdose as much as it is fentanyl poisoning in our country. Uh, so pulling them to the table, even if they don't want to come, I think has got to be a priority of this administration. With Congressman Russell Fry of South Carolina's 7th District, you can join and help his campaign at RussellFrySC.com or visit him on Twitter, RussellFrySC. Um, first, I have two questions. First, is it true you're the 8th grade ping pong champion? Oh yeah, still got the trophy. It wasn't a it wasn't a participation trophy either. It was a real trophy. <laughs> and with and and the person you 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 beat is that person still bitter about that or has he given yeah. up? Given up? They've probably given up. I don't know. But maybe they're bitter. I, I haven't talked to that person in a while, but you know. I think I think we need a social media post yeah. with that trophy. We'll, we'll think, be coming. We'll be coming we'll, back we'll with that, right? with more from from Congressman right. Gump here shortly. Exactly. Um, all right. <laughs> We have Hunter Biden and, mm-hmm. you know, the press, which is gives the ultimate cover to the Biden administration. First of a laptop, two years later, they admit it. Now we have all these alias names, 5,000 emails and archives. W- tell our audience what on earth is going on. I, I, I saw a tweet this morning. I just replied. The easiest way for Biden to solve this, just release all the emails if there's nothing there. Right. right. I mean, just no, I it's think, it, uh, transparency. So tell people a little bit about it and what House Republicans can do to flesh this out more since the press is going to do everything they can to protect President Biden and Hunter. Well, they're finally starting to pay attention. And I think that's uh, maybe begrudgingly, maybe they don't want to pay attention, but they're finally starting to take notice of what's going on. Uh, but the new the new revelation, you know, look, Hunter Biden or Joe Biden had aliases that they used. Um, and that's what the oversight committee had subpoenaed. They used aliases, you know, Robin Ware and uh, Robert Peters and, you know, different names that they would use. And so we subpoenaed anything that had to deal with those names or those email addresses. And again, it just shows a pattern of conduct with this family. You look at the text messages, you look at the emails, you look at the use of uh, the term, the big guy, you look at the FD 1023 that was released. You look at the, the, the bank transactions and the money that flows from, at, least at this point, four companies ultimately layered through kind of a series of money laundering um, actions and, and funneled into 20 LLCs that are all connected to multiple members of the Biden family. So this, this again, just shows a, a course of conduct. 
Well, um, and, what people and, and what people don't understand is I own several companies, so I have various LLCs for various things. Correct. It takes a lot of work to manage 20 LLCs. You get filings, you get taxes. I mean, so this wasn't done just to be, I mean, it was done more to be clever and hide something. They, it's, they it's don't a lot seem to be done. Admittedly, yeah. they don't seem to have paid a lot of attention to the taxes part. No, but it's, it, <laughs> would you agree with that? I mean, doing 20 LLCs, I mean, it takes a lot of work. Oh, it's a headache. And most of these LLCs were actually formed while Joe was vice president. Um, that's, that's kind of alarming. But, you know, to see, and I think there was a quote in the FD 1023. Y'all have seen it. Your, your listeners have seen it as well. But it was toward the bottom, and the guy says, it will take investigators 10 years to figure out what's gone on. And that's kind of proven true. I mean, we're on year, I think, eight at this point. Uh, but it's taken that long because, no one, one uh, DOJ and others didn't want to actually investigate this. Uh, but, two, when you're dealing with financial stuff, it's just so nebulous, and it's hard to follow, and it's hard to track, and it's hard to keep people's attention. But there is enough smoke here. Uh, that people realize what's going on. And I think that's why this, the work that we've done so far has been incredibly important on this uh, and also why I think that this is headed toward an impeachment inquiry. It doesn't mean impeachment. You still have to do your homework and make sure you, you do your job. But uh, at this point, there's just enough there. There's way more than enough uh, to launch that process. Um, we have about 30 seconds left with you. Tell our audience, tell your constituents, why you have faith in America's future. Because I, I have faith in the American people and, and their resolve and their ability to, to take uh, large amounts of information, synthesize them, and make an opinion. We're seeing people wake up in a powerful way right now. And, 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 and it's not just Republicans. It's really everybody realizing what's going on. The people control this country. They always have. Uh, and they see what's going on as, as uh, you know, shameful, but they're ready for, for you know, a better tomorrow. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Congressman. We very much appreciate your time today. Uh, folks, you can follow him. Uh, Chuck, what was that? I, I, you can follow him on Twitter, Russell Fry SC, or you can yeah. also visit his website, RussellFrySC.com. Contribute, volunteer, get involved. He's doing the great work and help him out. Congressman, thank you. Thank you all. Have a great weekend. Folks, more from Breaking Battlegrounds. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. Big thank you to our first guest up today, Congressman Russell Fry. Fantastic discussion with him. And now we're talking to someone, frankly, Chuck, I think this is going to be one of the most important congressional races for for Republicans in the country in this coming year. We're, it's going to be close. Well, if you like honesty in public elections, yes. Yeah, well, some of us important. still do. Some <laughs> some of us believe in truth-telling, even, even on the air here, where almost everyone else wants to lie to you. But, folks, we're not doing that, and that's why we have today Kellen Curry, congressional candidate running against George Santos for New York's 3rd Congressional District. He is a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy, one of those places where they don't take liars lightly, uh, and spent eight years on active duty delivering critical cybersecurity technology for our country's military. After completing two tours in Afghanistan, Kellen went on to work at J.P. Morgan's Corporate and Investment Banking Division in New York City. Kellen Curry, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be uh, talking with you guys this, this afternoon. So tell us, what did the Air Force do to prepare you to run for Congress and to serve in Congress eventually? Absolutely. I think, you know, every every part of, of my experience in the Air Force was extremely positive. You know, the, the, the culture of, of serving the country, which, you know, is, is a culture that I come from. Um, I'm a, my, you know, I'm a third generation veteran. My, my parents were, were public servants. Dad was a, a, a retired naval officer. Mom is a is a continues to be a decades long federal civil servant. And so just grew up watching wow. them and and, uh, you know, they, they work, both worked at Tinker Air Force Base right outside of Oklahoma City. And uh, just, you know, I always wanted to have my own story of service. And so I think it was always in my future. And uh, going to the Air Force Academy and serving in the Air Force as an officer, you know, just the, the lessons of leadership, the lessons of, 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 uh, of 
about being in a in a team in a group where you don't know who's you know who's a Republican or who's a Democrat. You just you're you're mission focused, and that's the kind of you know perspective I bring to politics. Kellen, considering especially mission focus, one of the things I like about your background, your resume, is the experience in cybersecurity. There are a few people in Congress and the Senate who are starting to become more aware of that issue, but it's not an area where there's a lot of elected expertise. Talk about mission focus. How much do you think you'll be able to make that your mission to help educate your colleagues about the various issues related to cybersecurity on both sides of the aisle? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, the country uh, has been going through and, and really all of society has really been going through a learning curve uh, when it comes to cybersecurity. And it's really just a matter of how do we defend and safeguard the information that's that's on that's on our networks. And we're so we're such a networked uh, people in a society today. And so, you know, the first and foremost is just, you know, your hygiene uh, on the Internet. You know, when you uh, do you do you use the same password for every website? I, I know some of us are, are guilty of that. I know I am sometimes, too. It seems like I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking across at Chuck right now and laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, we live in a, in a culture and a society where, you know, you got to have a password and login for like everything you touch. And so, you know, uh, that that's the first and foremost. And then the other thing is that I think from a national security standpoint is that we just have to invest. We have to invest and we have to nurture innovation. One of the best things about America is our is our innovative economy. And that flows into our, our national security. I mean, to the extent that we can uh, nurture that that innovation in a private sector, and then leverage it uh, to use in, in military applications is what you know my time in the Air Force was all about. And so, you know, like you said, being able to educate uh, you know our, our lawmakers on how to procure those those technologies, how to make sure that we don't you know pass regulation that that stifles that technology is is, is really the biggest thing. What do we do about China? I mean, you you were in the military, two tours in Afghanistan. What do we do about China? What are your colleagues you worked with? What what do people actually who defend this country think we should be doing with China? Yeah, yeah. Well, first and foremost, we, we have to not overreact. Uh, China, for sure, is a is a near peer competitor as we as we say in the military, and so they absolutely should be taken serious. But they have a lot of issues and challenges, social challenges on on their end. Right. Uh, you know, so so it's not like. You know, we're we're going up against an adversary that you know we we cannot uh, you know be successful in. I think you know going back to the innovative economy that that I mentioned earlier, we have to make sure that we remain an innovative and capitalistic economy that can produce technologies of the future. You know, you think about you know you think about China, so much of, of what they want to you know how they want to displace American superpower is is really through AI and quantum computing and, uh, you know, biotechnology and, and these other things. So we have to continue to make those investments. We also have to do things, though, for example, the Merchant Marine Academy is located here in my district. And so when you think about how do we sustain naval power in the South China Sea, the Merchant Marines are on the front lines of making sure that we're able to do that because they transport so much equipment and, and personnel into the South China Sea. So those are just, you know, a few things, a couple of things I would say. And then maybe the last is that we have to reinvigorate our all-volunteer military force, which is at an all-time low in terms of our you know, propensity for, uh, for people to serve. I, and I want to talk more about that and, and the Merchant Marine issue you brought up. Kellen Curry, we're coming right back with more from him. He's running against George Santos in New York's 3rd Congressional District, breaking battlegrounds back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. We're going to be continuing on in just a moment with more from Kellen Curry, congressional candidate running against George Santos in New York's 3rd Congressional District. But before we do, folks, how's that portfolio of yours doing? Are you making money in this stock market, this Biden economy working out for you? It doesn't seem to be working out for most people. That's why Chuck and I recommend you check out our friends and invest 
investyrefi. Go to their website, investyrefi.com. Learn how you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's right, up to 10.25% fixed. You can turn your, your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no penalty to your principal if you need to withdraw your money early. This is a fantastic opportunity. So check it out. Go to investyrefi.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Well, we're with Kellen um, Curry here. He is um, running for Congress in New York 3 against George Santos. And you can learn more about him at K-E-L-L-E-N-C-U-R-R-Y.com. Sam wants to follow up with some questions on the Merchant Marines. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so that's actually, uh, Kellen, thank you for bringing that up because that's actually something that hasn't come up here before. I know a little bit, bit about it from a friend who went through the Merchant Marine Academy. But one of the big uh, underlying issues to national security that I don't think most people understand is our ability to transport goods and troops in wartime crisis. And to do that, you need U.S. flagged carriers. And we don't have many of them. And that's a huge issue. And we don't have enough merchant marine sailors. And that's another huge issue. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you think about it, over 90 percent of the ships that come in and out of American ports are you know, our foreign crews. Uh, and so, you know, you could expect that in a conflict with China, they will do all they can to put pressure on those foreign crews and on those host governments not to make good on deliveries, uh, you know, to our ports. And we saw what, what can happen with this during the pandemic, you know, when store shelves went bare and, you know, the American economy was, was crippled, supply chains became dislocated. So we have to be able to continue our economy, even if, you know, we do get into, you know, a, a you know, a, a hot war, if you will, in the South China Sea with, with China. But, you know, to your other point, the vast majority of, of, of the military's equipment and personnel actually moves on sea. Um, and so we have to have that capability. It has to be something that's real and that's a deterrent effect and that China understands that we can sustain ourselves in a in a naval you know in a naval conflict or just a naval uh, operation uh in in you know in the uh, in in that region particularly in, in the south china sea and so so much of this capacity over the last you know three or four or five decades has really left our country and it's uh it's been outsourced and so we have to work and think about how we bring more of that capability back America. You know, we, we've seen industrial policy in the in the microchip space, and so we're going to have to do industrial policy to bring uh, the merchant marine presence back to our country, increase the number of sea lift officers, the number of merchant marine officers, which the, the Merchant Marine Academy produces. Um, and this is, you know, this is one of the crown jewels of our district. It's one of the crown jewels of, of the nation. We need a strong federal partner for that academy, and I look forward to being that uh, in Congress. You know, one of the things I think that's underreported also, uh, we had a different congressman on our program. Hopefully you'll be joining him in office fairly soon. But one of the things he pointed out was China's aggressive efforts uh, via both partnership and intimidation to essentially deny that chain of Pacific islands that the U.S. used in World War II to eventually get to Japan. But China realizes that that chain is, is our ladder in a Pacific war with them, and they're really doing a lot to take it away. You talk about that ability to deliver equipment. That becomes doubly critical in this situation where we can't count on our ability to fly troops and resources into those islands. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so much of so much of how we posture uh, to, to be successful against China is really going to depend on our allies in that region uh, to make sure that we have basing options, that we have Places where we can stage and and host, you know, our troops and our and our equipment in a way that you know that that China can't uh, can't penetrate. And so, you know, it's it's positive that we recently had a trilateral at uh, you know Camp David with uh, some of the nations there, but mainly Japan and South Korea and America. Of course, Japan and South Korea have been you know um, at odds for for quite some time. And so, our ability to to bring those nations together is, is extremely important. We, the, the administration uh, just uh, you know, we did a, a, a big bill uh, out of the House uh, that eventually passed the Senate and was signed into law to, to deliver more uh, aid to Taiwan uh, in a way that we haven't done in the past. And so uh, I think the administration just released, you know, about uh, two, two billion or so uh, to, to, you know, make sure we operationalize that, that, uh, that, that legislation. So that's, that's a good thing. I mean, one thing about America that's 
unrivaled is our alliances around the world. I mean, it's it's a tremendous source of soft power, the ability of, a, of an American president to pick up the phone and call somebody anywhere in the world and, you know, eight, nine times out of ten get a favorable response is is really, really important. It's going to be important against uh, against the fight against China. So it's good that we have, you know, an administration that recognizes that. And that's one area that I do support uh, this administration on. See, Chuck, I, I love it when we get congressional candidates and, and, you know, people running for office for the first time who can talk about this whole variety, wide range of geopolitical issues, because that kind of knowledge, uh, Kellen Curry, that you're just displaying is is rare for people who are entering Congress. And folks, you need to check him out and follow him at Kellen, K-E-L-L-E-N underscore Curry on Twitter. You can go to his website, KellenCurry.com. Definitely go and check him out there and support this man uh, because we need to bring, uh, we need to retain control of Congress. We need smart people there who can talk about issues like we've been talking about. And also we need to restore some integrity to this specific seat because, quite frankly, George Santos is an embarrassment to every Republican in this country. As He's he a continues. bad Saturday Night, Live, not Saturday Night Live skit. Kellen, let me ask you this question. There's two reasons. There's a couple reasons why you said you were running for office besides, obviously, your service in the Air Force and your tours in Afghanistan. One was running against George Santos because he's ineffective. But number two, you've cited Joe Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan, and you called it a disastrous withdrawal. Talk about it a little bit and what that meant to you and the people you served with over there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was it was heart wrenching. You know, I mean, I, I spent two tours there. I worked, uh, you know, I, actually, I worked on an old Russian base. Uh, we were embedded with with our Afghan allies working shoulder to shoulder. It was a very interesting unit I was I was attached with. You know, we actually bought about 30 helicopters from the Russians, actually, when, when relations were good in the early 2000s. And we were trying to outfit these with new armaments for what was essentially the Afghans, like, 82nd Airborne uh, helicopter unit. And so uh, we were doing that work. My job was to, you know, do all we could to keep these things in the air uh, and provide all the procurement necessary to, to do that and, and to teach the Afghans how to do that as well. And so, you know, you, you go through things like that. You, you travel the country doing that work, and then you turn on, you come home, and you turn on, you know, CNN, and you see, you know, people clinging from planes and, and just the chaos and certainly the 13 Marines that we lost. And, and there was just – there was a better way to exit that country that did not leave, uh, you know, America diminished on the global stage. And I think watching that, uh, certainly every veteran that spent time there, uh, watching that, and then, of course, you know, by going to the Air Force Academy, I had friends that went there that unfortunately did not come back home. And, you know, you, you internalize all that, and, um, and it, it, it moves you, you know, emotionally. And then you look over and you see, you know, we have somebody here in Congress who's just wholly unfit. And the fact is that, you know, our, our veterans and the American people writ large, they deserve the best leadership that our country can provide so that we can avoid those situations, but also so we can have trust that, uh, you know, the agenda that our elected representatives are pursuing is is the agenda of the people, not their own personal agenda. And so, you know, all of those things, I think, moved me to, to think about, you know, how I could serve again. And, and this was something that, uh, that that came up. And I did, you know, a lot of the research and, and asked a lot of the questions and uh, eventually got to the point where, where I decided to go for it. And uh, here I am. Well, we certainly need more leaders like you in Congress. And let me, you've had some great life experiences. So, for example, you ran the 60 meters at the Air Force Academy. Um, what did track and field teach you about leadership? Yeah, you know, I've, I've always been active in, in sports. And I think, uh, you know, for me uh, as, as an athlete, you know, you've got mom and dad there to, to, to you know, uh, to make you into, you know, the person that, that, you, that you eventually become. But, but something happens in that relationship with coaches and with athletes that's just special. And, you know, it, it, it enriches the life of a young person. You know, track did that for me. High school football did that for me. I still t- stay in touch with, you know, coaches from high school. Wait, wait, from, what from position high- did you play? We got we to gotta get the important stuff in here. Yeah, I was a uh, I was a defensive back. I didn't have any hands, so I couldn't catch anything. So they, they put me on that side of the ball. But uh, but yeah, man, I, uh, I I enjoyed you know sports of all kind and and just the relationship building and the team building that and and, le- and the lessons that you learn from those experiences. You know, they just make you a well rounded person and, uh, and and enjoy traveling the country and running track at the Air Force Academy. It was a real highlight for me. All right, so so now we know you were a DB. So the important question becomes: 
are you a Deion Sanders DB? Are you covering everybody, locking them up? Or are you Troy Palomalu? You're coming in there to knock their head off. I'm covering them up, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're a blanket. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was only like 160 pounds soaking wet. So, I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of hitting I could do. But uh, but I could run, you know, and I could run and chase and, and cover folks. And so uh, so really enjoyed, you know, the, the, the ups and downs of, of what you learn in, in that sport and just uh, in sports in general. So I uh, really enjoyed, you know, competing. You you worked in investment banking after the Air Force. One issue you're going to have to deal with when you're elected is our deficit and national debt. Are, it's just not a path we can continue. What do you propose we do on it? How do we pay down our debt? How do we get our finances in order? Yeah, I, I think the first thing we have to do is, is we have to be honest with the American people about where we are. I mean, the fact is we're not going to cut our way out of this hole. We're not going to you know, uh, grow our way out of the hole in terms of, you know, achieving, you know, astronomical GDP growth rates year over year. I think, you know, in order to bend the curve on, on the debt, we're going, we're going to have to get away from annual deficit spendings at some point. And, and listen, we're, we're, we are transitioning right now from a, a low interest rate environment to a high interest rate environment. So, so the, the, the interest on the debt is going to become more material than what we've seen in the past, and it's going to create more pain. Uh, so, you know, some of the first things that I think we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get our arms around how do we make our entitlement programs more solvent. Uh, we know that Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, you know, these programs are, are going to become insolvent here in the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. And so we've got to get serious about how do we restructure these things and do it in a way where Democrats aren't going to go out and say, oh, here, you know, here comes the Republicans again. They're going to end, you know, these programs as you, as you know it and, and all that. So, so we have we need presidential leadership on this issue uh, to to move the country in this direction and get serious about it because it will become something that uh, that begins to crowd out what we can do in in the defense space, what the investments that we have to make there, and certainly the the investments that we have to make on the domestic side as well. But but the entitlement programs is something that's going to be you know a forcing a forcing function that that makes us get real about how we spend and how we you know uh, allocate money. Uh, we definitely need more members of Congress who are going to hold the line on spending as we go forward here in the, in the next you know, several decades. Kellen, we have only about two minutes left here. Before we let you go, uh, what has been the initial response from folks on the ground there in, in the 3rd Congressional District in New York they, you know, as they're learning about you and, and that you're taking on Santos in this race? You know, it's it's been tremendously positive. Um, I think a lot of a lot of what was in, in the trajectory of the Santos story. I think at this point here, you know, people on the ground are just kind of sick and tired of hearing about the guy. And so, <laughs> you know, they they are they are hungry for what comes next. You know, we are we are the first campaign that's been out there on doorsteps, and the, and the reaction has been positive. They want to know, you know, who the candidates are, what they're talking about, what what their ideas are for for moving the district forward. Uh, and they're ready for the stain of, 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 you know, Mr. Santos to be removed. And so uh, I think at this point, uh, we've all kind of learned our lesson that we have to, you know, wake up and make sure we're paying attention in these elections, that we get out and vote, and that we know who we're voting for. And so um, I think you're going to see a lot of people who are just excited about um, about doing that work as citizens uh, and taking responsibility to make sure that they get to know the candidates. They're getting to know me. I think they like what they hear and what they see, and I think we're going to be successful here. I love that. Folks, uh, thank you so much. Kellen Curry, we really appreciate having you on the program today. Folks, you can follow him at Kellen underscore Curry on Twitter at KellenCurry.com. Make sure you tune in to Breaking Battlegrounds next week when we're back on the air. But in the meantime, we always have a little extra segment for our podcast listeners. Go to all your favorite podcast places, download us, subscribe, and we'll see you next week. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now.
Welcome to the podcast, only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds, folks. Thank you for tuning in, as always, and special thanks to Congressman Russell Fry and Kellen Curry for their appearances today. Fantastic discussions from them. But now we're continuing on with somebody that, frankly, Chuck, I always love talking to more than almost any of our guests. Uh, Friend of the program and repeat returning guest, Henry Olson, uh, Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Henry, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Well, thank you, as always, for having me back. Henry, tell us about your new podcast, by the way. Let's get a plug for it. Tell us about it. Sure. My new podcast is called Beyond the Polls, and I interview leading election analysts and uh, poll analysts every two weeks. And we talk about all things political. We talk about the Republican race, and we talk about where Biden is. And I always have somebody from one of the key swing states in my segment called State of Play, where the person who's on the ground knows the state best can give you the lowdown. So, so it's every two weeks. You can find it on all the podcast formulas. So since you've been doing that, tell us something that has stood out to you talking to your guest, a little nugget that has stood out to you. The importance of what I'm calling the double doubters, that uh, if you go back to 2016, the reason the polls were upended is that 18 percent of Americans didn't like Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And they switched in the last week from being undecided or third-party voters to backing Trump. Over 20%, my pollsters and lists are telling me, are double-doubters with respect to Biden and Trump. And that's before the mudslinging between them really starts in earnest. That sounds to me like if we do get the rematch that the polls suggest, we're going to get the same sort of late break that may confound the experts. So that get perfect segue into your, your column this week. Trump might have the lead in Iowa, but he has one big weakness. What's that weakness? That weakness is church-going evangelicals, that they are the group that has uh, swung behind one candidate uh, and, and propelled them to victory in each of the last three caucuses. Actually, the last four, they gave George W. Bush a, a narrow plurality in 2000. And I spent a week there, and the polls say he's got a lot of support among evangelicals, but the people on the ground may be willing to back him, but they're looking around. They want to see, is there somebody better, somebody who supports our values, supports our issues, and doesn't have the baggage? Iowa evangelicals historically break late. Uh, They wait until the last few months to make a decision. So it's not saying Trump isn't going to win, but don't be surprised if you see them switch to somebody who they think can give them 80% of the fight with 10% of the baggage. Is it just the baggage or are there specific policies that Trump is weak with them on? The one that popped to my mind was COVID and allowing the closure of churches. Is there something like that that's playing? I'll tell you, I was surprised in my conversations at the lack of policy disagreements. I would have expected more of the evangelicals to note things like that, uh, but also note his backing away from a strongly pro-life stance, saying that the whole point of overturning Roe was to negotiate without saying what he actually stands for. Uh, I did not get that from anybody. I really got a question of, uh, that his longstanding concerns about his character remain, and the question of, is this guy so tied down by his character and legal problems that he can't effectively beat uh, Joe Biden? And they're really scared of Joe Biden. They should be. They should be. Um, let's do a little switch here, and let's talk about um, the Hunter Biden stuff. Do you feel—look, you're in D.C. You, you, you're a columnist for The Washington Post. Do you feel— what people call the legacy media is really starting to pay attention to this issue? Or are they still trying to just sweep it under the floor mat? You know, I would say it's between. Um, and it depends on which legacy media outlet you're talking about. Um, yeah, there's beginning to be enough there, there. Right. Uh, you know, in the sense that you just can't ignore some of the things that are now being said under oath, as opposed to things that were being speculated about or which relied on you know, uh, on emails, uh, copies of emails found on laptops. And so I I think we're only one or two revelations away, uh, if those revelations exist, of the legacy media actually having to pay much more attention to it. I I think they're no longer in the sweep under the rug. Uh, They hope that it goes away. 
but if it doesn't, I think there's been enough there that they actually will, uh, will have to turn their attention to it. Do you find any reasonable explanation why he would have 5,000 emails under an alias? A reasonable explanation? Yeah, reasonable. Um, I mean, look, I mean, the easy way to handle this is just release them all. If there's nothing there, there's nothing there. Just make it transparency and embarrass the Republicans. That's an easy way to handle this, right? If there's nothing there. Yeah, yeah well, I never want to get into the argument uh, you know, that, that, that stereotypically is uh, offered by autocratic police departments. If you have nothing <laughs> to fear, you have nothing to hide. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, guys, guys, I, I, I don't know this. I've got to say, this is like going the, you know, when you've got this. This is like going to the ATM after 3 a.m. Nothing good is going to come from this. When you have fake email addresses and you're in office, nothing good is ever going to come from that. Yeah. You know, the, the, the thing is, I can imagine reasons you would want to do it, you know, sure. like evade. You know, uh, like you, yeah, you did don't you see Gret- Gretchen to- Whitmer's guy communicating with her in Greek alphabet letters? Oh, that's cool. To avoid FOIA. Oh, yeah, no, I hadn't. Yeah. I hadn't heard about that one. You know, just goes to show they all should have been watching Bill and Ted because I think <laughs> Greek alphabets when Bill interviews Socrates. But um, you know, I can imagine good reasons for five thousand emails under multiple aliases. Um, depending who he's communicating with. But again, the thing is, at some point, we're going to find out at least some of them. And if they aren't benign, you know, like personal stuff that you just don't want to have somebody, you know, somebody who's you're concerned about hacking and looking for the words Joe Biden. You know, I can imagine that if you were a foreign government and you might want to have malware placed on Joe Biden's personal friends and anything that says Joe Biden gets sent to Beijing. Yeah. I can imagine that as a vice president wanting to avoid things like that. But again, we'll see whether eventually some of these will be produced. May not be 5,000, maybe 200, maybe 500. And we'll see what they say. Interesting. Um, If we wrap up here, anything you think we should be looking for here in news the next month or two? Something that's going to pop up that you feel we should keep our eyes on? You know, (laughs) I, I think there's the usual, you know, we're, uh, who knows what's going to happen in the counteroffensive in Ukraine? Who knows what's going to happen with the Chinese economy? I would say, though, that, you know, the second debate is going to take place at the end of the month, September 27th, out at the Reagan Library. And it's going to be make or break time for some of these people. You know, that uh, the one in Milwaukee was really kind of first impression, kind of like speed dating. Second one is going to find out whether anybody wants to return the phone call. And so I think you're going to see a little bit more fire, a little bit more opposition. And it could be that somebody breaks out or somebody crashes to the earth. I, I would like to see a couple more people drop out before then. I would too. it to four or five, maybe. I think what's really impressive is the cultural references Henry's used today. Speed dating and Bill and Ted. That's the most amazing thing <laughs> of this aspect today. One last question. <laughs> One last question, Henry. I think Republicans have a really good chance of taking the Senate. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I think they should be the favorites, even if Biden wins re-election. That I has agree. to do with the map. Yes. You know, so poll came out today uh, or yesterday from a respected pollster, showed John Tester only getting 43 yes. percent against either of his opponents. Sherrod Brown, there's been polls, show that Brown's in a neck and neck race. But the important thing is, where is the longtime incumbent? And he's sitting at 45 percent, which is roughly around where a Democrat should get. Flip those two seats, the Republicans control the Senate. And then you've got all the other seats. This is a map that heavily favors Republicans. Joe Manchin, haven't even mentioned him. <laughs> now, these are three states that Trump carried by between six and 30-something points. Um, it's just hard to see where Republicans don't get those two or three seats. And then it's very hard to see how they would lose other seats that they hold, given water up to throw control back to the Democrats. Well, being a Republican, I have complete faith my party can blow it one way or another. So, uh, Amen. Amen. Our skills are legendary. Henry Olson, thanks a million for visiting with us today. Thanks for having me on. Folks, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show, and uh, we'll be back next week. And you can visit us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote or anywhere you find your podcast. Have a great weekend.